you have your Bibles this evening, you can turn with me to Romans 12, right, where we were memorizing. Romans 12. Now, it does say Hebrews 13 there on the screen. But as you know, we've been in a sort of a little bit of a mini-series uh, on grace throughout the last several weeks. And this is part three. Next week will be the, the, the fourth and final part where we're actually back in our text uh, proper as we walk through verses 10 through 14 specifically. Uh, but for this week, as we continue talking through grace, uh, remember where we have been. Uh, We started out in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, which says, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them which have occupied Uh, which have been occupied therein. And so if you recall, we began by saying, okay, what is verse 9 talking about? And we recognize the superiority of grace as a doctrine. And this left us in a place where the real question is, well, then what is grace? Uh, Then we had a a little bit of a week off as we talked about the resurrection. And that message there from Colossians 3 is going to have some bearing on this evening. And then after that, last week, we defined grace. Grace Defined, and we talked through the nature of grace and the definition of grace as the Bible speaks through it. See, the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. Foreign to the concept of grace is any contemplation of effort, any contemplation of merit, or any contemplation of debt. And that's what we talked about last week. These things cannot be factored into a grace transaction in any way if it is to be understood as a grace transaction. Because these things are the opposite of grace. And we walked through, particularly Romans 5 and 6 last week, as we talked through that idea. That grace, by definition, cannot contain work, effort, merit, or any idea of debt. So faith is the avenue that then qualifies us for God's grace. And that God's grace is the only hope for men of salvation is quite apparent in the scriptures. Now, historically... Going all the way back to the New Testament, the concept of grace has added a measure of controversy to religious sensibilities. And that because human nature has a a propensity to abuse favor, doesn't it? If ever somebody gives one favor, there is at least a temptation to take that favor and to run with it, right? To, To abuse it of sorts. And what I mean by that is that when people don't have any skin in the game, They tend to lack the care and appreciation that comes with an investment. And as it relates to salvation by grace, the idea that I am called to admit and accept that I cannot do anything to earn merit with God, to earn favor with God, leads some to be quite confused, others something like alienated. Because in human terms, we would call that system ripe for abuse, right? The idea that grace is an unmerited favor, a free gift, being given something that I do not deserve, that I cannot deserve, we'd say, well, there's a system that's ripe for abuse. If my eternal salvation is not contingent upon my effort or my merit, which is what the Bible teaches, then why would I ever put forth any effort to do anything for God? I can just grab my chunk of grace, sit back, relax, and do whatever I want to do. And we all know that that's not how that works. We all know that this is not God's design. That the Christian life is a life of distinction. It's a life that is driven. It is a life of desire. Indeed, absolute devotion to the principles of Jesus Christ. And this has caused turmoil. 
It's caused turmoil in hearts. It's even caused turmoil in denominations, historically. How do we reconcile the concept of grace first with the expectations of holiness that we find in the New Testament? And second, with the urgency and obligation that we feel toward God for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this has led not only to said turmoil, but also to insistence among some, perhaps we might say many, very well-meaning believers that grace is not that simple. That my salvation does and indeed must incur a debt. That it does come with obligations, legitimate obligations. And every true believer is, in a sense, sympathetic to such views because we do feel the weight of the blessing of salvation as it rests upon us. And furthermore, the whole situation can kind of get us riled up, can't it? When we see people who, in the name of grace, seem to live in a manner that is absolutely inconsistent with their standing in Christ. Joel and I were talking about this a little bit uh, before the service tonight. He showed up a little early and we were talking and asking that question, how can a person be sitting on grace and not live out the deeper implications of it? Because grace is so marvelous, so wonderful. What we have in Christ is so immense and, and, and beautiful. When we see people who in the name of grace live in, in, in this inconsistent manner and instead, at least from a certain perspective, abuse grace and use it as an excuse to live the way they want to rather than the way that Christ would have them to. And we say, well, that doesn't make any sense. How can that be the system? How can, how can, that, how can that be how things are structured? And this can lead to even more sympathy for the idea that Grace must be bound to some effort, to some merit, to some debt. Except that the Bible is so clear that it's not. But we might begin to spend our time focused upon actions. Clearly, grace must have some debt, some merit, some, some uh, work involved. And as we spend our time focused upon the actions, we will often then spend our time focused on the actions of others. And this will cause us to well up in some hearts judgment. In other hearts, we might actually bind our emotional state to the choices of others. And it can strip us of our contentment and it can strip us of our joy and it can take us to all manner of places. And God forbid that this should be our fate. Instead, the call is for us to rightly relate ourselves to grace. And as we live in that place where we are rightly related to grace in ourselves, then we can see clearly to call others to rightly relate themselves to grace as well and lovingly allow each person to make their choices along the way. So last time we were together, we established a definition of grace. And from a historical perspective, grace is a pretty unusual concept, as we've said, to be connected to religious sensibility. Because religion centers around doing, and grace centers around having favor because of what has already been done. And that's what we need to talk about this evening. Does grace release me from obligation? Well, if I understand it properly, yes, it absolutely does. But does grace also compel me into a certain set of actions? Well, if I understand grace properly, yes, it absolutely does. 
And we need to talk about that. Now, as I mentioned already, on Resurrection Sunday, we spoke in the evening service through, and we walked through Colossians chapter 3. We talked in that chapter about the putting off and the putting on principles, that we put off the old man and we put on the new man, leaving the weak and beggarly elements of a life of sin and abounding in the joy of a life that is buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life, that we are risen with Christ and all that that ought to imply in our lives. And through the Resurrection Day sermon, we learn these things. And, and though it's technically not a part of the Hebrew series, that message is kind of important to what I'm going to talk about today. I wanted to talk first about the idea of being risen with Christ and then enter into what I'm going to talk about this evening. But because I've just preached on being, uh, on being risen with Christ, I didn't want to preach it all over again. So if you didn't hear that sermon from Resurrection Sunday, the evening sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to that on YouTube or podcast or whichever format you'd like to. Because today we're going to build on its ideas a little bit. And we're going to do so by going back to Romans, where we were last week. Now, last week we were in Romans chapters 4 and 5, and that's where we defined grace. And then, as I said, the week before that, we were in Colossians 3, as we talked about then, once we know what grace is, can we then say that we have no obligation? And, And we went to Colossians 3 to answer that question with a resounding no, but we could just as easily go to Romans 6 to answer that question, right? As a matter of fact, I think I quoted Romans 6 last week when I was... Two weeks ago, probably last week too. It's probably been two weeks in a row. So let's, let's make it three. And we'll talk Romans 6. We're Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. The Bible says this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And that was that resurrection day idea, right? Walking in newness of life. And then we talked last week about the reality that, that, that though we have this grace, and this grace is indeed free, this does not mean that we ought to by any means continue in sin that grace may abound. Verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. So Paul tells us that the very fundamental reason for grace is to free us from sin. Now, these are not spoken in terms of obligation, debt, or merit, but rather in terms of love. And I'm not going to rehash all the concepts because that sermon was just two weeks ago. But the summary is this. In Christ, I am a new man, a new woman. I have a new heart. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Grace frees me from any obligation to sin. It compels me to align my heart with that which I am. If my identity, if the very fabric of who I am is now wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ, why would I do anything other than embrace that identity? If Christ is the one who saved me from all of those things of which I am now ashamed, why would I go back to those things of which I am now ashamed? 
Why would I live in the weak and beggarly elements, either of sin or of the law, when I have been brought up, when I have been, been uh, graduated into something so much better in grace? So I put off the old man with all of its affections and lusts, and I experience a fundamental change in my affections as I put on the new man. And then I live in that transformation. But Romans doesn't end there either. Last week we talked about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Freely ye have received, freely give. And this week I want to talk about what that kind of life looks like. And we're going to do so through the practical portion of the book of Romans. I spoke on Resurrection Day of the structure of various Pauline epistles. And recall that Paul's books oftentimes have a structure where the beginning or the first half of the book is theological in focus, teaching and doctrinal in focus, and the second half of the book is practical and application-oriented in focus. And I talked about that with Colossians, that Colossians chapters 1 and 2 are theological and 3 and 4 are practical. And then in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are, are, are doctrinal, and chapters um, 4 through 6 are practical. And I also mentioned Romans, and Romans is a little bit different. And the reason why Romans is a little bit different is because there's kind of a parenthetical in Romans. So you get chapters 1 through 8, and they are effectively doctrinal. They are positional, they are doctrinal, they are teaching-oriented. Then in 9 through 11, there's kind of this parenthetical where Paul answers the question, okay, we've got all this stuff about grace, and we've got all this stuff about uh, um, salvation. What about, what about national Israel? What do we do with them? What do we do with Israel? Like, the actual nation of Israel. And he answers that question in chapters 9 through 11. So it's still very doctrinal, theological in scope. And then beginning in chapter 12, things turn very practical. And 12 through 16 is practical. And that's what I want to walk through. And I do mean walk through this evening. I'm going to walk through chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. Sure, I can spend three weeks on Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It'll only actually be two. But I can also get through a few chapters of Scripture in an evening. You'll watch me do it. And the reason why I want to do this in survey fashion is because I want us to kind of see the breadth and the width of the ideas and the implications of living life in grace. What does living life under grace mean? Look like it doesn't just mean I've got my fire insurance now and I'm I'm free to do as I will. There is a life lived under grace, but it also does not mean that I have incurred debt or obligation. So what does it look like? And Romans and and, and remember this: when Paul gives the practical application in the second half of his epistle, it's the practical application to what he was teaching in the first half of the epistle. So in Colossians and Ephesians, the primary focus is our standing in Christ, holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. And because we're holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight, we have the standing in Christ. What does that mean for us? And that's what the latter half is. Now, in Romans chapters 1 through 8, it's all about grace. And so if we want to truly understand what a life in grace looks like, the application section of the, the book of grace is where we go. And that would happen to be Romans 12 through 16. So we're going to walk through this in survey fashion. And it's going to look like this. 
In 12 verses 1 through 16, we're going to see, first of all, that grace frees me to serve. I'll come to the other ones as we get there this evening. Grace frees me to serve. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have been given the gift of salvation by grace. You have been ushered into grace. Grace has freed you from condemnation. Grace has freed you from debt. Grace has released you from the sorrows of sin. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. Your eternity is secured through the goodness of Jesus Christ who commanded you to give to others out of the same freedom that you have been given. Matthew 10, freely you have received, freely give. And Paul's first order of business then as he applies grace is to establish the relationship that this sets between those who share this like faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Paul exhorts the believer in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So the first thing Paul says as he steps into the application of grace is that by virtue of the fact that you have received this wonderful gift, by the mercies of God that have been applied to you, put your life on the altar. I no longer live under the weight of my sin. I no longer live under its guilt. I no longer live under its shame. I no longer even live under its direct power in my life. I've put off the old man and put on the new man. Now, what do I do with myself? Put your, put your life on the altar. See, here's the thing. If I don't have to look inward anymore, the, 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 the amazing thing about sin and the debt of sin and the weight of sin is that the debt and the weight and the guilt of sin keeps me looking inward, doesn't it? Everything I do has to be focused on me, whether that's doing some sort of religion to try to atone for my sin, whether that's um, serving in the lusts of my sin. It's a very self-focused idea. But when I am freed from that, when I am raised to walk in newness of life, when there is no more condemnation, when there is no more guilt, when there is no more shame, I don't have to look at myself anymore. I don't have to spend my time thinking about me, and thus I am freed to start thinking about others. To live for others. So we read in verse 9 Let love be without dissimulation, that's hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. What does grace look like when lived out in the Christian life? When we assume the posture of one redeemed from shame, redeemed from the degradation and the guilt of sin, one justified through the finished work of Jesus Christ, what does that look like? What does living in grace look like? Grace looks like a life that is freed from the crippling weight of having to earn righteousness with God, thus freed to turn my eyes off of myself and to put them onto others. To pour out the kindness of God upon others. To be fervent in spirit, to be prayerful, to be generous. Grace lived out in our lives looks like serving others Grace is freedom. 
Grace is freedom from self. Second, the Bible says, or, uh, in, in verses uh, 17 through 21 of Romans chapter 12, we have this second point. First, grace frees me to serve. Second, grace frees me to forgive. The example of Jesus Christ through grace does not just reflect service and kindness to my brethren. Does not just reflect kindness to those who have served me or been kind to me. The example of Jesus Christ through grace reflects kindness and forgiveness even to those who don't or can't deserve it. And this is grace. Even upon those who make no attempt to deserve forgiveness, grace compels us to forgive. Grace is not grace if it's only given to people you like, people who are kind to you. Jesus did not come to save the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance, right? Grace is for those who don't deserve it, by definition, because if they could deserve it, they would not need grace. So we read Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, and it's our memory work for this month too, verses 17 and 18, right? Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Grace frees me from the need to hold people under my accountability. Grace frees me from the need to live in bitterness against people for the things they have done to me. Grace frees me from the poison of holding people in contempt because they won't admit their own wrongdoings. Jesus died for men who will shake their fist at him until their very last breath. Jesus purchased forgiveness by grace for all men, regardless of worth or merit. This is the essence of grace. And Christ's grace shined into our hearts, frees us from having to approach other men with that kind of attitude as well. I don't have to avenge myself of other men's wrongdoings against others or against me. I don't have to stir up strife on account of offenses. I'm freed from that. Christ bore their sin on the cross as he bore my sin on the cross. Vengeance is the Lord's. There's a day of judgment coming. If they are living in a place of wickedness, the Lord, they they will answer to him. And by the way, God can do a much better job than I can at vengeance anyway. So I'll leave it with him. And what does that do to me? It frees me. I'm free. I don't have to live under the weight of their actions against me or others. I don't have to live in shame or guilt because of them. I don't have to live under the frustration that they won't make things right with me. Now, granted, there still will be sorrow, right? Especially if 
that desires reconciliation. Because while forgiveness is a one-way street, I can forgive someone, though they may never ask for it, be, worth it, be worthy of it or deserve it or, or anything of the sort, I can't reconcile until they're ready to come and make things right. So we're not talking about reconciliation, but we are talking about forgiveness. Grace frees me to forgive and so frees my heart from living under the weight of other people's actions, other people's responses, other people's anger or bitterness or whatever it might be. Christ's grace shines into our hearts and frees us. Much to the contrary then, the spirit of grace that has been poured into my heart both frees me and then it compels me to do as Christ commanded in Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45. He said, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Notice why. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. We don't do it because if we don't, God is going to strike us down. That wouldn't make any sense, right? Love your enemies or I'll hate you. That does, no, 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 right? That doesn't make any sense. But what is it? Love my enemies because I am the child of my father. Because I live in the shadow of a, of, of a great God and I am his son and I'm going to live up to the worthy name by which I am called my father forgave I forgive too. That is grace. Grace frees me to forgive, to live in forgiveness, because grace is freedom. First, grace is, frees me to serve. Second, grace frees me to forgive. Third, as we step into Romans 13, 1 through 7, grace frees me to submit. A part of the reality that I am dead to self and alive unto Christ is that I understand that God has ordained authorities. And that regardless of the extent to which an authority in your life reveals himself, even to be incompetent or self-serving, regardless of the restraints and injustices which he might seek to levy upon you, the true treasure which you hold rests in the inner man. Grace is inside. And because grace is inside, that can't be taken. That can't even be threatened by any person on this earth. And as I live out the freedom of that inner man, that grace, a part of that freedom is that I can choose to submit myself to said authorities, not for the sake of the authority themselves, but for the sake of the Lord who has ordained that authority in the lives of men. So we read in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, then I'll skip to verse 6. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Skipping to verse 6. For this cause, for for this cause, pay ye tribute also. That's paying taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear unto whom fear, uh, honor to whom honor. And then... We, I, I jump to First Peter for a moment as Peter asks this question. And I want you to take this idea of authorities and taxes and honor and these sorts of things. And I want you to translate it into what Peter asks in the same sort of context in First in Peter chapter 3, verse 13. He asks, and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? 
Now, Peter asks this to a people, and Peter also exhorts in 1 Peter uh, obedience to honor the king, obedience and submission to, to set authorities. And the question Peter asks is a, a question that he's asking to a group of people who are being openly persecuted by both individuals and governments. And the question is, if God be for me, who can be against me? If by grace I have a home established in the heavenlies, and by grace I am serving, by grace I am forgiving, by grace I am submitting, what can man do unto me? Do you see the freedom there? That I don't have to live under the weight of a bad authority. Do I have to live under the circumstances of a bad authority? Oftentimes, yes. But do I have to live under fear, resentment, anger? No. Who can harm me if I be a follower of that which is good? They can't touch what's inside. Now, they can harm the outside. And governments throughout history have shown that they're very willing to do that for Christians, against Christians. Who can harm you if you be a follower of that which is good? They can't touch what God has given to you. They can't touch grace. That's liberating. So I'm not going to get too worked up over the outside. Grace has freed me to be able to live that way. And then because I can live that way, then I can look at that authority and I can say, I'm not doing what I'm doing because of you. I'm doing what I'm doing because of the Lord. Because of the grace that is inside, I am happy to regard you in the way that the Lord has commanded me to regard you. Be that the authority of, of, of the government, be that the authority of the husband, be that the authority of the parents. When we understand grace, we are liberated from this idea that, oh, I'm not being treated properly. Oh, they're not, they're not a good leader. And we are free to simply say, by grace. Well, as Horatio Spafford once wrote, whatever my lot God has taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Because grace is freedom. Grace frees me to serve. Grace frees me to forgive. Grace frees me to submit. Fourth, in Romans 13, verses 8 through 14, grace frees me to love. If I live in grace in my life, as I live under grace for my eternity, this frees me from the typical debts and obligations of factioning myself off into loyalties based upon resentments or commitments, and instead opens me to have a genuine and direct love for all men, as Christ showed his love for all men. So Romans says, Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And of course, Jesus gave that great parable, which we call the parable of the Good Samaritan, whereby he was asked, and who is my neighbor? And the simple, the cliff notes answer is, 
Your, your neighbor is the one who is in need. The only debt I owe, the only debt I want to have in my life is the self-imposed debt that I love others. Owe no man anything but to love one another. The only debt I want to feel is the debt that when I interact with someone, I feel deeply indebted, a debt that I, I cannot explain, to pour into them the same kind of love that's been poured into me. That I owe you nothing except that I am determined with all my heart to love you and so fulfill the law of Christ. We read two weeks ago the same thing in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul wrote that above all things put on charity which is the bond of perfectness. That as Paul went through the list in Colossians 3 of all the things that we put off and all of the things that we put on, he says, above all those things, put on love because that's the glue that's going to hold it all together. And indeed it is. Grace frees my heart from, feel the, from feelings of obligation toward you in the sense of I have to live the way you expect me to live or anyone expects me to live. I have to live under the shadow of obligations to some sort of ceremony or some sort of tradition or some sort of ritual. But there's one thing that I don't want to be free from. And that is that to the best, uh, to every, the, the fullest extent of that which lies in me, I'm going to love one another. Not because I have to. Not because I'm afraid of the dramatic consequences if I don't, although there's a day of judgment coming. But because God has done this to me, and I am a child of my Father in heaven. And if I am a child of my Father in heaven, and this is how my Father acted toward me, then how could I do anything but the same toward another? Grace frees me to love. Grace is freedom. Grace frees me to serve. Grace frees me to forgive. Grace frees me to submit. Grace frees me to love. We're moving right along here. Verses uh, 14, 1 through 23. Grace frees me from judgment. And I don't mean eternal judgment. It means frees me from having to judge you. Grace frees me from the need to conform everyone to my standards and expectations. Grace met me where I was and took me from where I was to where I need to be. Is taking me. May I say it that way? Grace is taking me from where I was to where I need to be as I submit to the Lord in grace. Grace instills within my heart the same compassion towards those around me that God has shown with me. So Romans 14, verses 1 through 4 says this, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. 
Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Now, we'll talk more about this on Tuesday nights as we're going to be walking through the question of what does judgment not look or not look like? What is judgment in the scriptures? That's a question that we're going to begin answering this Tuesday. But grace frees me from the need to hold people under my standard or my understanding of their outworking of faith. Yes, a part of the Christian life is holding each other accountable to God's standards. We don't doubt that. Accountability is an essential part of the Christian life. It is an essential part of what the church is here for. It is here for accountability one with another. Iron sharpening iron, helping one another along, edifying one another, and keeping one another accountable. Provoking one another, as Hebrew says, unto love and good works. This is a part of the church. This is an essential part of the church. And yes, the breadth of teaching on Christian liberty tells me that there is an entire subset of life which, though it may be lawful, it is not expedient. And that for two reasons. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but first, I will not be brought under the power of any. Because though it is not sinful, something might still exercise undue power over me, and I don't want that thing having power over me. I only want the Spirit of God having power over me. And second, all things are lawful unto me, but all all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. The second reason is because though it may not be sinful, it will not work to serve or to build up a brother or a sister in Christ. And so I might actually set aside various aspects of What is my liberty? Number one, because I don't want to be under bondage to anything but Christ. And number two, because I don't want to uh, cause a brother or sister in Christ to falter, fail, be confused, or anything of the sort. But none of this truth-telling, none of this accountability in the church body compels me to hold myself above other men and compel them to conform to my expectation of the Christian life. And that's the idea here. And here's the thing about judgment. And this is one thing that oftentimes we don't think about, but it's very, very true. Judgment is a heavy burden to carry. Just as bitterness and resentment are heavy burdens to carry, judgment is a heavy burden. When I walk around deciding how people stand before God, that's actually kind of a a heavy weight on my shoulders. And the blessing of grace is that that burden doesn't fall on me. I tell the truth. I live my life in a manner that testifies of the superiority of God's way. I help men and women through this life as I reflect into their ears and before their eyes doctrines and wisdoms and experiences and the like. This is something that the church is called to do in every manner. But I never need to feel the weight of imposing upon others my perspective or way of thinking. I can, and indeed should, share as I have the opportunity the ways that the Lord has convicted me and directed me and these sorts of things. I can and should live as I am giving opportunity to live out my faith before men. But men will stand before their own master, and men will fall before their own master. And I am no man's master. God is the master And every man and woman in this room will rise and fall, will stand and fall before that master who is 
God, the great judge. And the question is, you're doing what you're doing. I'm doing what I'm doing. Do I have confidence that on the day that I stand before my master, I will stand? Or will I fall? And if others are under grace themselves, living rightly related to grace in their lives, even if it doesn't resonate with my perspective on life, thank God I am free from the stress of having to worry about that. Now, I might still worry about the consequences. When I see a loved one walking in something and they seem to have a measure of confidence that in the day that they stand before their master, they will stand. And I look and the wise man foresees the evil and hides himself and I say, that man is not hiding himself. And there's going to be consequences for that. And that can bring to my heart grief, sorrow, concern. But what it does not need to bring to my heart is judgment. He will stand or he will fall before his master. And I can tell the truth and I can live the truth and I can pray for him and I can do those things, but I cannot change that man's heart. Nor is it my job to. And I will not manipulate him or cajole him or blackmail him or guilt him or shame him or anything else into doing what I think he ought to do. He will stand or he will fall before his own master. And if God holds him up, then God be praised, he will be held. It's not my burden to bear. God is able to make him stand if, if he will stand. It's not my burden to bear. Grace is freedom, Christian. I'm free. I'm free, from, I'm free to serve. I'm free to forgive. I'm free to submit. I'm free to love. And I'm free from needing to judge others. Thank God for that. One more. Grace frees me to edify. The word edify simply means to build up. We've talked about being free from in order that I might serve. Being freed from self so that I can look outward. So that I might be generous and so that I might um, be kind and so that I might do these things. But... Unto what end? Unto what end am I generous? Unto what end is my kindness? Unto what end is my patience? Unto what end is my forgiveness? Unto what end are these things? Even my lack of judgment. Unto what end? That when the relationship between you and I is finished, you would be stronger in the Lord than when it began. I don't know how long all of us are going to be together in this church, but my prayer is that when we go our separate ways, and I hope that's a long time off, you and I will both have been better, stronger, closer to the Lord for having known each other than when we began. So we read in Romans 15, verses 1 through 6, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you 
to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, as he came, your reproaches fell on me. He came to bear our reproaches that we might be better for having known him. It is perhaps passe, perhaps a little bit trite at this point. The old adage says freedom isn't free, right? The liberty of grace frees you into so many things. But that liberty doesn't mean that you won't end up tired at the end of the proverbial day. (laughs) Because the grace of God that has been poured out into my life is there that I may pour myself into others that I might be able to build you up. And even if I am building you up by letting you stand on my back, I'm going to build you up. That the strong may bear the infirmities of the weak. That I may live not to please myself, but my God and my neighbor. That I might build up my brethren in the most holy faith, that I might tirelessly invest myself in another, not because I have to, but because how can I do anything less when Christ has done all for me? And may the God of patience and consolation grant us that we may be like minded toward one another, because grace is freedom. Grace frees me to serve. Grace frees me to forgive. Grace frees me to submit. Grace frees me to love. Grace frees me from judgment. Grace frees me to edify. Now taking it all back to where we began in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, Paul says, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them, that have been occupied therein. There is very little profit in religious ritual in, 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 in many spiritual ways. But grace is profitable with all. As we've walked through in the past two weeks, first the definition of grace and then these principles of what it means to live in grace, can you see just how inferior, the word used here is unprofitable, a system of ordinances is to the grace that we now have in Christ. Can you see why it is a good thing that our hearts be established with grace and not with meats? Now, next time we're together, we're actually going to be back in Hebrews 13. We're going to walk through verses 10 through 14, and we're going to see the fullness of of this teaching through these very concepts where Paul will say, we have an altar on which they who keep the tabernacle cannot eat. And if we have this great gift, grace, let us live it. And though grace is free to receive, what it will ask of you if you take this and you assimilate it into your lives will be costly in a sense because the cost of carrying this grace into the world is very real. It will mean tired days. It will mean, it, it, it will mean confused days. It will mean alienated days, falling, having to fall back constantly on the grace of God to supply for us so that we might pour that grace into others. But the best thing about that system is that God's grace is up to the task. 
That to whatever extent you are willing to then take what the Father has granted to you and pour it into another, God will be there to pour in more. And this is what it means to live in grace. So for today, let us remember the freedom into which we are born at the moment that we step into salvation by grace through faith. This is your birthright. This is what you were reborn to do. And may it compel us unto the kind of life that pleases the one who purchased that grace for us. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.